Welcome to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokas. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. And we have developing stories to bring you today. And we start with an appalling mass killing at a nursery in Thailand. At least 36 people have died, including 23 children, and that's according to authorities. The killer, identified as a former police officer, took his own life. We'll have the latest in just a moment. And Kim Jong-un is keeping tensions high on the Korean peninsula. North Korea firing two ballistic missiles into the sea as the U.S., South Korea and Japan hold a military exercise. It's the North's 24th missile test this year. But first, Ukrainian officials say a number of Russian missiles have struck the southern city of Zaporizhia. And they said the attacks on Wednesday night and early Thursday morning killed one person and injured seven others, including a three-year-old child. Meanwhile, President Vladimir Zelensky says Ukrainian forces have liberated more settlements in the south of the country. Joining me now, we have CNN's Fred Pleinkin in Kyiv. Uh, Fred, good to see you. Uh, Zaporizhia, the region of Zaporizhia, is one of the four areas that was annexed recently by Russia. And now we're seeing these attacks. Could you tell us what is going on? Mm. Yeah, Zaporizhia clearly is under attack. The city of Zaporizhia, and of course, one of the things that we have to let our viewers know is that you have the town of Zaporizhia, but you also have what's called the Zaporizhia Oblast, which is a whole region of Ukraine, and that's what the Russians have said uh, that they've annexed. However, of course, they don't control all of it, specifically this city that they've struck uh, with these missiles, both overnight and in the early morning hours of today. And you know, some of the videos uh, that are coming out there out of Zaporizhia, they're just absolutely tragic. The aftermath of all of that, it seems as though some of these missiles have leveled uh, large parts of very big residential buildings. You were just uh, alluding to the fact that at least one woman uh, was killed in those strikes. Several others were wounded and you could see the rescue crews there in Zaporizhia trying to get people who were trapped under the rubble out. It seemed as though that was something that took a very long time. And then the early morning hours of today, we got another alert from Zaporizhia with the local governor there uh, saying that uh, there was another missile strike and that the city was under attack again. So a devastating situation there in Zaporizhia. And it really seems as though the Russian military is trying to strike targets from a long distance. We also heard similar reports of Odessa, of the Russians. They're not using missiles, but rather kamikaze drones, most of which uh, the Ukrainians say have been supplied by Iran. But at the same time... You do have the Ukrainians saying that they are continuing to make gains, both in the east of the country, but then also in the south of the country as well. And that's sort of the area where Zaporizhia is located. But there's another town called Kherson, uh, which the Ukrainians are sort of trying to move towards. And in total, the Ukrainians have said in the past couple of days in the south of the country, they've managed to uh, win back about 400 square kilometers of territory. So that's a big chunk of terrain in just a couple of days. So right now, the Ukrainians clearly believe that they have the momentum on their side, but at the same time, as the uh, video, the, the pictures that you're seeing on our screen right now show, um, certainly still some devastating strikes that the Russian military is able to carry out, Eleni. Yeah. Fred Pleiken in Kyiv, thank you so much for that update. Now, Ukraine says Russian forces are trying to move wounded troops and damaged equipment as they suffer losses in the south. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh traveled to two liberated villages to see what has been left behind. We want to warn you, viewers may find the images in his report disturbing. We don't leave our own behind. A Russian war slogan you hear less these days, especially along the road south by the Dnipro River, where the Russians seem to be collapsing since the weekend on yet a third front. The pace of Ukraine's advance you can feel on the roads here. 
and it is hour by hour that they move forwards, this road lined with Russian bodies, abandoned Russian positions. It's clear people left here in a hurry. In just the last three days, they've swept along the west bank of the river through Russian positions, the shallow, shabby foxholes of an army with almost nothing at hand. Even what little they had was abandoned, especially this tank, a model that first came into service 60 years ago when Vladimir Putin was nine. Here, the village of Mikhailovka, right on the river, is getting cell phone service for the first time in six months and aid. Shells slammed into here 90 minutes ago from the Russians still across the water. It's the price of their freedom. The Russians would check on us, she says, tried to make us vote in the referendum, but we didn't. Still, we survived. We old people always have food supplies. Outside the village are more of the short-lived occupation, left in the tree line with a sleeping mat and shells. In nearby Lubomivka, there was heavy fighting Saturday, and then Sunday, the Russians just vanished. Gratitude for aid and liberation going spare to almost anyone. Smiles at it is over, and shock at how fast. It was very scary. We were afraid, she says, hiding. They were bombing, robbing. We survived. They ran, the rain came, and they ran. Signs all around of how their unwanted guests just did not know what to do when they got here. Or have food or beds. So they filled that gap with cruelty. Andre had a generator and would charge locals' phones. So the Russians decided he was Ukrainian informer and beat him. They brought me from here and they put a hood on my head and taped it up, he says. Then we walked a few steps up and down. They beat him so badly, his arms turned blue from defending his head, still there months later. Stalemate had torn these huge expanses up for months. Now it's broken, as has the fear of the Kremlin's army here. Bereft, abandoned, filthy and vanishing down the road. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, along the Dnipro River, Kherson region, Ukraine. To Thailand now, where a mass killing at a childcare centre has left at least 36 people dead, including 23 children. It happened in Nongbua, Lampu province, in the island's northeast, and I want to warn you, this video is disturbing. The killer who used a knife and a gun, has been identified as a former police officer. After he murdered his wife and stepson, he took his own life. Celine Wang joins me now. Celine, a horrific, tragic story. What more are we hearing from authorities? 
Well, we've learned from the police that this 34-year-old former police officer had actually been dismissed from the police force and that hours before the shooting, he was actually appearing in court on drug charges. We're learning from the police that he went to the nursery at around noontime armed with several different kinds of guns and a long knife. Police said he went to this child care center looking for his two-year-old stepson. He could not find him. He managed to get into a room where 24 kids were sleeping. He started stabbing and shooting at the kids and the staff members. Police say all but one child died in that room. After that, we have learned from police that he drove home in the meantime, on his way back, was running into bystanders. Bystanders, when he got home, he first took the life of his own stepson and his wife before killing himself. Now, authorities had released a most wanted man notice and poster for the man before he killed himself. The prime minister in Thailand has expressed his condolences. In the videos at the scene, you can hear and see the family members weeping and sobbing, ambulances and medical workers at the scene. This is a profoundly troubling, devastating, tragic time for Thailand. This tragedy occurred in a part of Thailand, in northeastern Thailand, that is quiet and tranquil. It's not known for violence. While the rates of gun ownership in Thailand are relatively higher than other parts in the region, mass shootings are rare. And we're still waiting to learn more information about the motive of this man. But again, we do know that he's a former police officer. The police have also told us that he does have a history of drug use. Eleni. An unmanageable uh, horror. Uh, Celine Wang, thank you so very much. All right, North Korea has conducted its second missile launch of the week. It fired two short-range missiles into its eastern waters just two days after it sent a missile over Japan. Today's launch also comes after the U.S. redeployed an aircraft carrier near the Korean peninsula. Paula Hancocks has the details for us. As North Korea continues to break its own missile launch record, South Korea says trilateral naval exercises are back in its waters. The US, South Korea and Japan holding drills to track and intercept missiles, a response to the North's launches. What is the impact of all this, you know? American aircraft carriers cruising around Korea? Pretty much nothing. It will probably make some people in the United States and Republic of Korea a bit happier. But it will have zero impact on North Korea's behavior and decision-making. North Korea blamed their recent flurry on the U.S. Thursday, calling them just counteraction measures against last week's U.S.-South Korean naval drills. It will only increase the condemnation, increase the isolation, increase the steps that are taken uh, in response to their actions. But a United Nations Security Council hearing this week suggested Pyongyang is not isolated. While the U.S. blamed Russia and China without naming them for enabling North Korea, Russia and China blamed the United States for increasing tensions, a schism that benefits Pyongyang. Kim Jong-un is doing what he thinks he can get away with. Uh, he's not expecting any kind of strong U.S. reaction. He's letting the South Korean government and the U.S. government know that he has significant capability. North Korea is expected to continue capitalising on geopolitical turmoil, a seventh underground nuclear test expected at any time, if it happens, most likely after the Chinese Party Congress, so as not to anger its main benefactor. Kim Jong-un also released a five-year plan less than two years ago. He appears to be working his way through that list.
This leads many experts to believe that this cycle of testing will continue, especially as Kim Jong-un knows that he is very unlikely to face any more UN sanctions, while Russia and China are in no mood to side with the United States. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Right, straight ahead, Swedish police trying to establish why the Nord Stream gas pipeline started leaking. We'll have the latest thoughts and what the White House and Russia are saying about plans for OPEC Plus to cut oil production. That's all coming up after the break. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Let's take a look at what U.S. futures are doing right now. The number of Americans filing new claims for unemployment benefits increased last week from the previous week. As you can see, futures pointing down uh, three-tenths of a percent. Meantime, the Federal Reserve is monitoring the job market closely as it works to get inflation down, which has, of course, been sticky for the past few months. And the oil market prices little changed today after OPEC Plus agreed to lower production by 2 million barrels a day, it is a controversial move for many. Brent crude is down three-tenths of a percent. It's the biggest cut since early 2020 when the COVID pandemic began. Now, President Joe Biden calling this decision by OPEC Plus to slash oil production, quote, short-sighted. In a statement Wednesday, the White House said, at a time when maintaining a global supply of energy is of paramount importance, this decision will have the most negative impact on lower and middle-income countries that are already reeling from elevated energy prices. It comes as Swedish uh, police reports that their findings on the leaks in the Nord Stream gas uh, pipelines um, have revealed new information. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Uh, Claire, good to see you. Reading about some of these revelations is that they found uh, that Nord Stream 1 and 2 had been detonated. And, of course, we're starting to get a little bit more information on whether this, in fact, could be pointing to a, a sabotage. Yeah, Eleni, the Swedish security police have now finished their crime scene investigation of the leaks in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 that happened in the Swedish exclusive uh, economic zone of the Baltic Sea. And they say that their findings indicate that this was caused by detonations. They caused extensive damage. And that strengthens their suspicion that it was, quote, gross sabotage. They're not at the moment pointing the finger uh, at anyone. But while they have finished their on-site investigation, this is not over yet. They say that there were certain seizures, things they took uh, from the site that is still uh, under investigation. And they will have to assess whether anyone could be prosecuted uh, on this later. But meanwhile, as we have been reporting, the entire region uh, has been put on notice. People are stepping up security around energy and other infrastructure. And everyone really has a vested interest in getting to the bottom of this. Listen to what the, the Finnish foreign minister told CNN's Issa Suarez on Wednesday. When you look at the magnitude of the disaster, what has happened, it's very likely that the state or state-like organization is behind these activities. These are not, uh, these are not made by dilettants. So uh, I, I think it's, it's very important that we try to get uh, proof who is really behind it. 
He also said that Russia is one of the suspects, although they obviously don't have proof of that yet. And Russia, meanwhile, has been responding to this, really trying to discredit the investigation, uh, both the Kremlin and the foreign ministry, saying that Gazprom, which is the majority owner uh, of these pipelines, has not been invited uh, to be involved in this investigation. The foreign ministry spokeswoman, Maria Zaharova, suggesting that this means there is something to hide. But look, there is no proof as of yet. Uh, but, but Russia is clearly preparing the ground by discrediting this investigation to, to deny all involvement. Uh, and Claire, uh, OPEC plus deciding to slash oil production. The U.S. very vocal about the fact that they believe it's going to uh, be problematic in terms of energy security. But the Russians, not surprisingly, responding positively to this move. Yeah, look, Russia needs oil prices to be high now more than ever, yeah. frankly, because uh, their budget is so stretched by the war, especially with this mobilization uh, and by the sanctions that the West uh, has imposed. And they want it to be clear that their, their involvement with OPEC Plus is one of the levers that they can pull in this energy war. So the Kremlin today uh, saying that OPEC and the OPEC Plus format have confirmed their reputation as a responsible structure that ensures stability in international markets. So, look, this is clearly a price tug of war. On the one hand, we have OPEC cutting production. Yeah. On the other hand, the U.S. says uh, that it might be you know, releasing more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Meanwhile, we also have the EU adopting a new sanctions package that paves the way for a potential oil price cap on Russian exports. Russia, though, says that it won't supply oil to any countries uh, who comply with that, which could, of course, bring prices up. So it's a very delicate balancing act, but clearly Russia, again, making it clear that it feels it still has cards to play in this. Absolutely. Claire Sebastian, always good to see you. Thank you so very much. Right, joining me now is Alex Irune. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Ando Energy Resources. Alex, always good to see you. Um, I have to say, I think over the past day, everyone has been wondering why OPEC Plus would choose to slash production. Um, and it's pretty striking that this is the highest levels that we've seen since, uh, since 2020. Russia responding positively. And some are saying that this is going to have enormous geopolitical ramifications at a time where relationships specifically between the U.S. and Saudi are important. Do you think, simply put, this was the right decision? Hi, Lenny. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's always good to be here. I think um, volatility is bad. I think we can all accept that. And one of the things OPEC is in yeah. place to do is curb the effect of volatility, especially in the environments that we see currently, uh, global markets. Um, I, I think if we go back in time, I don't believe this uh, cut was surprising or is or should be surprising. Um, OPEC, uh, when we saw the slump in activity during the pandemic, we saw a $7.9 million barrel cut uh, from OPEC members. Um, we then saw consumption increased significantly over the next six quarters, uh, you know, taking, um, you know, outstripping demand by about 1.5 million barrels, uh, you know, uh, at the time. Now, the Russia-Ukraine crisis has created, uh, you know, a, a tight market. Uh, we've seen uh, some level of equilibrium return, uh, but at the same time, we've seen OPEC also release another 1 million odd barrels yeah. back into the market. Um, now, what the OPEC members are saying is there is an imminent glut. Uh, we see, we, we've seen price soften over the past few weeks uh, up until the announcement. Uh, and in truth, you want to 
perhaps pro protect another collapse, uh, because I think that will be bad for the entire uh, world, uh, as opposed to focus, uh, I guess, on the on a short-term, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah. issues around, uh, you know, uh, inflation, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But we can, we can talk about yeah. that. I mean, look, and it's such a good point, right, because that is the sticking point, inflation. Where is that going? OPEC is saying they're predicting um, demand destruction, perhaps similar to what we saw during the pandemic. I want to talk about what Nigeria is doing right now. You obviously have operations there. Nigeria hasn't really been able to meet its quota, what it, uh, its allowance is. But then again, all OPEC members are not meeting that quota. We've got a graph that shows that, that gap. Um, why is Nigeria not able to meet its production capacity? Uh, Lenny, the, the main point is, like you said, all OPEC members are struggling to meet that, um, you know, that, that capacity. And in practical terms, if you look at the cut that OPEC's, OPEC just put on, um, it's almost equivalent to the performance uh, in relation to its ambitions, right? So uh, there is some practical application there that means there you know perhaps the cuts are negligible or, or not or not real in some in some regard uh, but we go to Nigeria uh, Nigeria has had a few challenges in recent times um, with pipeline vandalism and, and sabotage and what the government has done alongside the national oil company is uh, focus on the issues that are causing this and, and set up certain task force and, and, and investments to push uh, you know these perpetrators out of the region, and obviously apprehend uh, those they can they can catch. But move us from a current production of what is about nine hundred thousand barrels a day back up to uh, closer to OPEC quota in the million point five million yeah. eight uh, in, in that region. So the the authorities are working, you know, hard on this, and and we believe we will start to see some positive impacts uh, in the very near term. Yeah. So, Alex, the, the other interesting narrative that has emerged from, you know, pulling Russia out of the oil market is that other oil producing countries, specifically in Africa or that have reserves, would be able to fill that gap down the line. Frankly, it has been one of those sort of bright spots that we've been talking about on the continent, but never really been able to fulfill at a global level. What do you think will change now? Um, where Africa has this opportunity, African countries have an opportunity, but countries like Nigeria, for example, case in point, aren't able to even meet their quotas. I think there's a huge opportunity for, for Africa to may play a more strategic role in, in a long-term, mutually beneficial energy plan. Um, I think this is how we must look at the energy ecosystem. Uh, we, we believe that uh, Europe currently is perhaps um, in a you know, tight spot uh, with regards to strategic decisions made uh, decades ago. Um, I think the uh, pipeline from Africa into Europe would have certainly been an alternative. Um, and then we can consider how far down south that pipe pipeline carries on. Uh, we've seen reserves found in Mauritania uh, and, and other areas that make that, that ambition, you know, certainly more viable. Uh, and we see other African countries that can plug into that. So I believe the conversations um, have started. I believe uh, progress has been made on certain fronts. Certain, yeah. Certainly on the virtual pipeline model, on the LNG model, we're seeing um, more shipments into Europe uh, to support the situation out there. But in general, uh, look, Nigeria for is a gas province uh, with a little bit of oil. 
Um, yeah. We okay. we have a significant role to play in that in that journey, and we're certainly really willing, and, and the gov government and uh, I, I is, wanna, is ready I, to do this. I, I want to quickly talk about oil prices. Right, we're sitting at around ninety dollars a barrel. Where do Nigerian producers want to see? oil where it's not going to mean crisis mode? Because we've been talking about this break-even level, you know, for certain countries. Where do you want to see Brent crude? Because we're saying now OPEC plus decision might actually cause an energy crisis of a different kind. I think the levels uh, today will probably be maintained uh, for the, till the end of the year. Uh, I don't believe that it's an issue of uh, break even or not. I think uh, the, the issues are multifaceted. Uh, there is certainly the requirement for investment. We've seen very soft prices from uh, 2014 to about 2017 before prices started to, to rise. And then we saw the pandemic come and take out uh, a lot of that gain. In that time, the investment required to ensure the reserve replacement ratios that drive energy consumption, I on the demand and supply side, create enough energy for us to all consume. We've seen those distorted, yeah. and that investment must go back uh, into where it needs to be. This is not setting aside gas as a transition fuel. This is not setting aside the renewable ambitions of even the OPEC member countries who are you know, dedicating significant amounts to uh, renewable uh, uh, projects around the world. So for, for us, it's, it's less about where we want to see it. I think it's more about how we maintain one, Reduce uh, volatility, uh, reduce volatility across our economies that are dependent on on oil and gas. Secondly, yeah. is how we drive the um, investment uh, ambitions of all the countries. Uh, you know, and and these sometimes require us to have uh, you know the the, the 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 commodity within a certain limit and within a certain uh, price range. Yeah. I enjoyed how you evaded my question on a specific price point. Um, Alex, Brent crude is sitting at almost $93 a barrel. Um, I know that you had a tough time during the pandemic, like most oil producers, but we'll, we'll continue this conversation soon and hopefully also in person. Alex Irune, thank you very much for joining us. Always good to see you. Uh, and still to come. Fighting on the front line, a former Ukrainian government minister goes into combat against Russian invaders. We speak to him. That's coming up next. Welcome back. Now, Ukrainian officials say a number of Russian missiles have struck the southern city of Zaporizhia. They said the attacks on Wednesday night and early Thursday morning killed one person and injured seven others, including a three-year-old child. Meanwhile, President Vladimir Zelensky says Ukrainian forces have liberated more settlements in the south of the country. My next guest is Vladimir Omelyan. He's Ukraine's former Minister of Infrastructure and he's been fighting on the front lines alongside his countrymen since the war began. Mr. Omelyan, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Um, I, I want to talk about how successful Ukraine has been in its counteroffensive holding on um, Kharkiv. We've seen incredible gains there. Um, Kherson region as well. We're also hearing that the Russians are losing ground. And then we also have the news of what's happened in Zaporizhia. Could you break down for us what we've seen over the past few days? Uh, thank you for having me back. And I'm very happy to be with you as well. Uh, concerning uh, Ukraine, definitely we uh, have very good counter-offensive uh, operations right now. And uh, Russians do retreat. But it takes our lives and uh, in response, Russians simply kill as much civilians as they can 
uh, with their missiles and uh, Iranian uh, systems they, they got just recently from, from Iran. And definitely uh, it's a blood, bloody war, but we know what we are fighting for. And we show to ourselves and to the West that democracy uh, should be ready to fight for its principles and values. Uh, Russians uh, did understand that they cannot conquer Ukraine. They cannot go farther as they dreamed of Poland, Baltic states or even Western Europe. But uh, battle is still going on. Could you explain to us what is happening in the regions where Russia has now annexed, where they're not fully Russian-controlled, and frankly, where there is a counter-offensive? Do you feel that the rules of engagement have changed? Um, Russia turned out for everybody much weaker than all of us supposed it to be. And it's our biggest advantage, maybe, uh, during the course of the war. Mm. But... Uh, Russians are trying to influence by any instrument they can reach. So it's not only military means, but it's also economy. They are threatening the world not only with nuclear war or nuclear blast on nuclear power station, but also with the uh, world hung uh, hunger or anything else. Uh, they also uh, send a lot of propaganda messages. And sometimes even the smartest people on the earth turned out to be telling the uh, Russian words and uh, ideas. It's sad, but still uh, we are doing well. And even occupied territories, uh, as of today, are shrinking for, for Russia. Yeah. And uh, we have even joke in Ukraine that somebody is, is asking for the map of Russian territory and uh, uh, cashier mm -hmm. uh, asks in response, what is the date for this map you are yeah. asking for? meaning that every date uh, territory is, uh, is getting smaller. Since the announcement of a partial mobilization, have you seen anything significantly change on the ground, specifically on the front lines? Uh, they lost almost all its professional army. Right now we are fighting with mm. like a second wave or the third wave of Russian army. But they take uh, by numbers. Uh, we already see newly mobilized uh, soldiers from Russian side in the battlefield, but uh, not too many of them as of today. Uh, more will come for sure. And we expect that by the end of this year, beginning of next year, Russia will try to uh, make another attack on Ukraine at the largest scale. Definitely if uh, we are not supplied with enough weapons from the West. So you've been fighting since the war began. You gave up your job and you went into the front lines. You know, I remember the conversations at the beginning where Vladimir Zelensky was saying we need more weapons, we need more assistance. How have things changed for you, for the people fighting? And could you give me a sense of morale? Uh, you know, we, we are very much encouraged by the support we receive from the West, and we are very grateful for that. Because it's one thing to fight uh, like a one-man standing, and definitely it's different status when you fight together. Uh, morale is very high, and people do understand that it's not the end of the uh, war when we simply restore our borders. This is about Russia to be denuclearized, and it's about uh, Kremlin to be... Uh, destroyed or getting much weaker as it is today. Uh, a very, and uh, uh, very quickly, how long do you think this is going to last? I know you're sounding optimistic. Morale is very high. I guess there's a prognosis that this is going to be many years in, in, in the making. 
You know, for Ukrainians, it's more than 100 years war, frankly saying. Uh, and I believe yeah. this is the last episode of this war, which will take another year. And I hope 2023, we will end the collapse of Soviet Union, which started in 1991. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your thank insights you. and we wish you all the best. Thank you, sir. Take care. We will win. All right, coming up after the break, an idea that was ahead of its time and now the technology is catching up. An astonishing car with an astonishing history. The co-CEO of Aptera is up next. Welcome back to First Move. Let's take a look to see what um, markets are doing right now. It uh, opened mostly flat, and that's after a day. Uh, all major indices closed in the red. As you can see, we were down slightly on the Dow. New data today showing that initial jobless claims in the U.S. rose last week. Shares of Peloton are up, and that's after the company announced 500 job cuts. That's about 12% of its workforce. As you can see, up 1.65%. Uh, and then Pinterest is jumping after Goldman Sachs raised its rating on the social media company. It's up over 5%. Now, moving closer to reality, a solar electric car, which looks like something out of the Jetsons, just clocked up an important milestone. This three-wheeled wonder is the Aptera. It's being developed in the U.S., and its makers claim it can drive for 1,000 miles on a single charge. That's an industry record. Now, on top of that, solar panels over most of the bodywork mean that for short journeys, it doesn't need charging at all. The latest prototype, the Gamma, went on display last month, and the aim is to get a production vehicle on the road by the end of the year. The company says it's had 30,000 pre-orders from customers in over 100 countries, representing over a billion dollars of income. It is a story of perseverance for Steve uh, Vambro, Aptera's co-founder and co-chief executive. Um, thank you, sir, for joining us. It is exciting to see this. I was reading the story and I'm thinking, is this the end of the combustion engine? Are we one step closer? I think so. I mean, uh, with our latest yeah. video that we published, you have the showing our solar production uh, starting to ramp up. Um, it's just one step closer for sure. All right, let's talk about how this vehicle works. And you've had um, a lot of orders coming through. Uh, could you give me a sense of how you're able to commercialize this? We know that you're in, currently in gamma phase. What does that mean realistically? Gamma is the last phase of development before production intent. Uh, so the Delta product a vehicle, which will be uh, coming out next year, will be completely production intent off of production tooling, made with production processes. Um, and right now and until that time, we'll be working on our supply chain, uh, getting all those parts and in inventory, getting the systems working and talking together so that we can actually scan material as it comes in and build the vehicle. So right now, what you don't see is all the work that's happening behind the scenes to make this a production ready product, supply chain, uh, inventory management, yeah. ERP, all those kinds of things. I mean, it is quite exciting. I think of sort of the, the normal automotive space and original equipment manufacturers and just what kind of parts they require. Could you break that down for us in terms of what the Aptera would need and uh, the supply chains, the value chains that you'd need to start tapping into? Well, the big thing, and you can see by the shape of it, it's very efficient. Mm. And that means it uses yeah. very little energy. 
So what that means for supply chain is we're using far less batteries to go the same amount of mileage as a typical electric vehicle. In terms of the body, a typical automotive uh, body and wide, as they're called, has several hundred parts. Our vehicle has six main structural parts. So our supply chain is actually smaller than a typical car because we use fewer cells, fewer batteries, and fewer parts in general because of the composite design. Um, you also seem to be breaking um, a lot of records in terms of how far this vehicle could go and also exciting um, where you have people already doing pre-orders. Could you tell me about some of these clients? Are they businesses? Is it in personal capacity? And where will this vehicle be shipped to? Yeah, anyone can go on our website, aptera.us, and, and pre-order, reserve, yeah. or even invest in the company. Right now, we've got about 35,000 pre-orders. Uh, it's almost $1.5 billion worth of product. Um, and an overwhelming majority of those 30,000 are just in North America. Uh, so we've got people yeah. in Germany, Switzerland, Australia, but we've got our work cut out just to deliver the ones that we have in North America first. Is there enough sunshine in Germany to keep this vehicle going? I'm wondering. Where I am in Abu Dhabi, I'm sure I'd be able to to consider it. Um, I, I want to talk about the problems, right? So you've got to have a good battery efficiency. You've got to think about how you're going to recharge. Could you take us through those issues that you've been dealing with? Well, uh, the issues really are with any small company producing a vehicle. It's, you know, how do you ramp yeah. up? How do you hire fast enough? Uh, how are you fundraising? Uh, how are you doing all these things that you have to do and staying on track? Uh, but I would say in terms of things like batteries, you know, our, our problems are fewer than a typical company, a uh, typical EV company, because our battery just has to do less work, right? It's, it's, it doesn't have to work as hard. It can be smaller, has fewer parts. It costs less. And uh, I think that's one of the things that make our vehicle so attractive is that yeah. it, you can go you know, 400 miles on a single charge with the middle-of-the-road yeah. battery pack. You don't even have to get the most expensive option. Uh, and very quickly, how much does this vehicle cost? Is it cheaper than me going and buying a combustion engine vehicle or a normal EV? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the cheapest one is uh, around $29,000, and that'll go 250 miles okay. on the charge. And even with solar, you may never have to plug it in. So you'll be able to go to Dubai and Abu Dhabi okay. back and forth twice <laughs> on one charge. Very interesting. Look, there's a lot of sun to go around here, so I'm sure it'll keep those vehicles uh, going. Steve, really good to see you. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best. Much appreciated for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And still to come on First Move, Elon Musk says he's back into buying Twitter, but could he still be heading for a court battle? The latest details coming up after the break. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. Now, records released by Britain's Parliament show Liz Truss's successful campaign to become Prime Minister was fueled by donations from the financial sector. More than half the money she raised linked to hedge funds, venture capital and financiers, the kind of people most likely to gain from her removal of a cap on bankers' bonuses and a reduction on the top tax rate, which produced a storm of disapproval. Meanwhile, soaring inflation is hitting many low-paid Britons hard. Nino Dos Santos has the details. After a disastrous reaction to her government's budget, the pressure is on for Liz Truss to balance Britain's books. The political debate has been dominated by the argument about how we distribute a limited economic pie. Instead, we need to grow the pie 
so that everyone gets a bigger slice. She's already U-turned on tax cuts for the rich, but with billions more to be saved... Thank you! ..choosing where to trim is politically tricky in a country already facing stark inequality. At this food bank in South London, staff say that they're seeing more and more people rely on their services just to meet their everyday needs. This in one of the richest cities, in one of the world's biggest economies. And after years of biting austerity, anemic wage growth and now rampant inflation, there's little tolerance here in places like this for further government spending cuts. There's a lot more people coming there, a lot more people suffering. But I never, ever, ever in my life thought this would be me. I'm worried. Yeah, I'm really worried. Mariama is among millions of Britons reliant upon benefits to top up their earnings, to cover housing costs or to compensate for disabilities that keep them out of work. A welfare state under pressure from a new PM who won't say if such payments will keep pace with soaring prices. It will be difficult for me to manage the situation if I don't get help from the government. Meanwhile, middle-income families could be pushed into poverty too, thanks to rising mortgage costs sent spiralling by the budget itself. We've seen interest rates at the short end rise by about a percentage point since Liz Truss's mini-budgets. And all that will mean is that the impact of the cost of living crisis will hit those on middle incomes and not just those on really low incomes. The advocacy body Citizens Advice reckons 53% more people now need this type of help versus at the start of the year. And at the food bank, they're seeing that trend firsthand. It's not your average homeless guy coming along to a food bank anymore. We are seeing working people come to the food bank. We're seeing people who are getting to the end of the month and they can't manage to pay for their food. We have families that are coming along, which we never had before. As bills increase, locals are also donating less. Food bank itself has halved the number of bags that it gives to each family. Do you think that the UK government really understands the predicaments that some of the people who use your services face? No, I mean, it's just been shocking. Um, I've just, I'm, I'm appalled by the government and their reaction. Um, I would really welcome to invite uh, maybe the Prime Minister and the Chancellor down here because I don't think they get a true picture. Nina Dos Santos, CNN, London. Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter isn't a done deal just yet. The Tesla CEO told Twitter this week he wants to go ahead with buying the company at the price originally agreed and call off a looming court case. But the two sides still haven't formally settled the legal standoff. Paul LaMonica joins me now. Um, they haven't completely settled <laughs> in terms of what this legal standoff is going to look like. So I wonder, could we possibly see a U-turn again? I'm, I'm starting to get major whiplash from all the decisions and then lack of decisions from Elon Musk. It is dizzying, Eleni, yes. As of right now, yeah. October 17th is when the trial is set to begin. There is a lot of speculation and chatter that both Twitter and Elon Musk will try and come to terms on the deal really being official before then in order to avoid the trial. But the last we've heard from the judge is that the trial will proceed as planned because there has been nothing done legally to stop that process. So 
I don't know if that means Musk changes his mind again and decides to not go through the deal and go to trial. I think we probably get a formal agreement signed. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, just a lot of head scratching, I think, in Silicon Valley and Wall Street about this. That's exactly what's happening, right? And look, I'm also looking closely at the the Twitter share price, which has been really volatile based on what Elon says and doesn't. But also his sort of what he's been doing on Twitter lately and the things that he's been saying has also been very fascinating. Um, Paul, describe what people are saying about what Twitter would look like owned by Elon Musk. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation about what a Musk-led Twitter would look like. He has talked about uh, a sort of Uber app, um, you know, potentially called X, that could be the kind of social media app to rule them all, if you will. Uh, What that exactly would look like remains to be seen. But there are definitely questions about how Twitter could change under Musk. Would Musk relax some of the content moderation rules in order to allow what he would see as more free speech on the platform? Will he bring people that have been kicked off, like former President Donald Trump, back to Twitter? You know, that's an open question. And also, Elon Musk made a case, you know, legally that he didn't want to do the deal because he was concerned about the number of fake accounts. He's got to get that under control because unless he really wants to stop having Twitter rely on advertising and move to a subscription model. How do you tell advertisers, come to Twitter, it's this great Mm. social media platform, disregard everything I said in court about all those fake accounts? Yeah, a lot of contradiction and hypocrisy there. Paul and Monica, always good to see you. Thank you so very much. And finally, on first move, a SpaceX capsule is closing in on the International Space Station after a successful launch from Florida on Wednesday. The four-member crew is expected to reach the ISS later today. Those on board include Nicole Mann, the first Native American woman to go to space. Alongside her is the first Russian cosmonaut to ride on an American spacecraft in 20 years. Another American, as well as an astronaut from Japan, are joining them. Also on board, a stuffed doll resembling Albert Einstein to show when weightlessness had been achieved. Fun times. All right, that's it for the show. Thank you so very much uh, for watching. I'm Eleni Jokas in Abu Dhabi. Connect the World is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.